we go through these Proverbs, we have mentioned several times that uh, this book of wisdom points us, like all other Scripture, to Jesus. And it's one thing to make that connection between the book of Proverbs and Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We can make that, that connection. I am seeing more and more, and I just love this, that proverb after proverb after proverb was spoken in different ways by Jesus. I mean, it's, if, if I didn't know that Jesus was King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the epitome of wisdom, wisdom incarnate in and of Himself, I would say Jesus is well studied in the book of Proverbs. The truth is, there's the Spirit of Jesus who gave Solomon the Proverbs in the first place. But you see that, and I think you'll see that as we go through tonight, so many times that as you read through the Proverbs, that the true understanding is, is opened up even more when you go over to the teachings of Jesus and how they interconnect. And I'm just thankful for that. I, I praise the Lord for revealing Himself to us in this way, through His Word, and, and for revealing to me personally and to this fellowship that great reality that the Bible is about Jesus. That this is His book from cover to cover. And that everything we study in here points us to Him. I, I was, I'm reading a book, actually, just started reading it today. Not enjoying it, but it's a, a book called Already Gone. I think I may have mentioned it a, a week or so ago. Talking about uh, how of a large group of uh, study done of 20-something people, how the vast majority of those who went to Sunday school are no longer faithful. And it almost seems, you just read the hard, cold statistics, it almost looks like going to Sunday school made them less faithful. Because those who did not go to Sunday school are more faithful. And so there's something really messed up and wrong. And, I, and I'm reading through this and I'm thinking about the fact that you know, when it comes to teaching our children and when it comes to teaching in the church, the problem is not with the Word itself, but it's with how it's being taught. And it's with the fact that, that we don't look at the Word of God in the church so much anymore. It's not being taught as, as the truth, for one thing, the absolute truth of God. Not, not a book of, you know, maybe some good ideas. Some things may have been spoken by God. Other things are just man's ideas. I mean, churches approach it that way. Churches approach the book as, as a law book or as a story book rather than as what I just said, the Jesus book that is all about Jesus. And I really think if we approach the Word of God looking for the one in whom it is or about whom it is written, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, Jesus says, and if we come to it that way, then we shouldn't have to worry about people dropping away from the faith because it's a lot more difficult to leave a relationship than it is to leave a religion. It's easy to walk out of a church and go, I ain't going back there. But it's another thing when you have been spending a lifetime seeing Jesus and hearing from Him. We're going to do that some more tonight. And uh, Lord Jesus, just teach us by Your Spirit. Open up these words to us as only You can. We thank You for the pages of Scripture. But Lord, we don't want them to just be pages. And we don't want to just be well studied. We want Your words spoken and written to be on our hearts. Deepening and, and developing a closer walk with You. And so Holy Spirit, we entrust these things to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 1. Let's just jump right in. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler. 
and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Now, Solomon has a few things to say about wine and drink, and we're going to come back in a couple of Sundays and deal with it head on. I've talked about it a few times before, but you know, this is one of the most difficult issues for Christians because it's one of those that we just want to walk the line. You know, uh, people want the right um, to drink and to not have it be an issue of faith, but the Word of God makes it an issue of faith. So we're going to talk about it in depth in a couple of weeks, but let me just give you a few things on this first verse that I think you need to note. It's not that drinking wine makes a person a mocker. It's not that strong drink makes someone a brawler, although that can often be the case. No, what Solomon is saying is he's personifying it. He's saying that wine itself is a mocker. How how so? Because it mocks the person who drinks it. You can almost imagine that glass of wine sitting there saying, have another. Just have one more. Come on. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. How so? It fights against a person's self-control. I don't know if you've seen the YouTube videos of the little orange, the annoying orange. Has anybody seen those but me? Okay, a couple of you. It's absolutely hilarious and very annoying. But it's basically someone did this little trick of photography and has an orange sitting on a counter and a little mouth appears and starts talking and just saying annoying things to the apples. You know. Anyway, it's kind of like that. If you had a glass of wine there, if you had a beer there, if you had a fifth of vodka there, a little mouth appearing and mocking and, and brawling and fighting against, against wisdom. It's almost as if alcohol had a mind of its own. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. The word intoxicated is shagah in the Hebrew, and it means to lead astray. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And wisdom dictates that in the history of mankind from Noah beginning in Genesis chapter 9, all the way up to present day, no one, listen to me, no one is exempt from the wily deception of alcohol. No one. Now you can say I'm a teetotaler, and I I say that's great, but it might only take one drink for you. No one's exempt from the way it can work against people, against us. So be wise. Paul puts it this way, Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to be filled up with joy? Do you want to have just that, the excitement of living, the joy of the Father? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is wine, it's a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler. Let me remind you again, these Proverbs are not the opinions of a wise man. They are the Spirit-inspired words of God Himself. They are the wisdom of Christ. And so it's the Lord who's saying to each and every one of us, and I recognize Jesus turned water to wine. I know that. We'll talk about that. Not tonight. But we'll come back and deal with that, you know, Lord willing. I realize that. But He warns against it. He warns against the stupidity of strong drink, of, of how it can get hold of us. And we lose control. Well, verse 2. How's that for a beginning? (laughs) The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his soul. Daniel writes in chapter 
2 verse 21 of the book of Daniel, it is the Lord who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. Paul writes, as we noticed a few weeks back, Romans 13 verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, Solomon understood all this. Remember, Solomon was the king of Israel at its greatest. The king of unified Israel. Israel would never be, never had been, nor would ever be again, at least until Jesus comes, as great as it was under King Solomon. And so as the king... He writes, the terror of a king is like a growling lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. Don't mess with me, Solomon is saying. And he understood this. You don't want to disrespect my authority. Solomon could say, I am a son of Judah. I am of the kingly line. I am of the tribe of the lion. That's me. In fact, you know what Solomon did? Thanks to old Jacob's prophetic blessing over his son Judah, the family crest was that of a lion. And so Solomon made an amazing throne. We're told about it in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 19. It tells us there were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its rear and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps, one side and on the other, and nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. This throne of Solomon was ornate, it was stunning, it was terrifying, it was these lions lining up. I mean, to walk up those stairs toward the throne, you had to pass these twelve lions, and then two up there on either side of Solomon, and he would sit on his kingly throne. But listen to this. I was thinking about this earlier this week. What was it that old Jacob prophesied over his son Judah that would be played out in the tribe of Judah? Listen to this. Genesis chapter 49 verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. What's a lion's whelp? It's a cub. Judah's a lion's cub. And then he says, From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Then... Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Judah was a lion's cub, not fully mature. And if Judah was a lion's cub, then I would say David was a preteen. When would the lion of the tribe of Judah fully mature? Not until Shiloh comes. Not until the lion of the tribe of Judah would come himself. The full roar of the mature adult lion is only heard in the voice of Jesus Christ. And this picture is wonderful. By the way, someone might say, well, okay, the terror of a king is like a growling of a lion, but isn't that used to describe Satan? Yeah, Satan's always trying to pass himself off as Christ. Okay? Antichrist in the Greek literally means another Christ. Not against Christ, but another Christ. And that's what Antichrist is going to try and do, and that's what Satan's going to compel him to do, is to pass himself off as a Christ figure. And so Satan's the counterfeit, that roaring lion seeking to devour, Peter tells us. But Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and if you're going to be afraid of one or the other, I would suggest you fear Jesus. 
I would suggest if you're going to be terrified of either, that it be of Jesus Christ. Terrified? Yes. Yes, terrified. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life, or literally in the Hebrew, nefesh, his own soul. You anger this lion, and your soul can be forfeit. Lots of people think about Jesus as the Galilean carpenter. You know, the genteel country prophet. We think of Jesus carrying the lamb on his shoulders, and he does, and he is all of that. And he is the gentle one who who says, you know, come, if you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He is the one who is meek, but he's also the terrible lion. He is also the great one. You know, it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, John doesn't go back and relive the old stories. Read through the book of Revelation. He doesn't visit or revisit the old glory days of Jesus' earthly ministry. No, it's all about the glory day of Jesus' coming. It's all looking ahead, and John begins the whole book with a vision that is almost too much to take in. In fact, it knocks him dead momentarily. Shared, I I believe that he flatlined. Jesus touches him and revives him. When he sees him, read Revelation chapter 1 through. Read Revelation chapter 19 through and tell me, is that a country prophet? (laughs) Or is that the terrible lion? He is both. He is awesome, magnificent, and yes, terrifying. You know something else that's interesting? In all of the Apostle Paul's writings, there is only one reference that I can find. So feel free to check this out and get back with me. One reference in all of Paul's letters to the Gospels. Just one. And it's the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. He references the Lord's Supper and Jesus setting that up. Paul doesn't talk about the healing ministry of Jesus. Paul doesn't give stories of his life, walking on water, calming the sea, feeding the 5,000. He doesn't talk about the Bay of Pigs. He doesn't talk about the lame, the deaf, touching the leper, calling the apostles. He doesn't cover any of that. Why is that? Well, it's because he knew Jesus after the resurrection. He knew him after the resurrection. Paul met Jesus for the first time face to face on the road to Damascus in glory, and it blinded Paul. And Paul would later even, 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10, interesting passage. Paul talks about a man who was caught up to the third heaven and saw incredible, all-surpassing visions. Probably was Paul himself being trained by Jesus. And all of these things, this awesome thing, Paul never looked back at the Galilean carpenter. He looked forward to Jesus the Christ, the anointed king. And so Paul was always longing for his appearing, not longing for what he did in the old days. Looking forward. When we fully recognize Jesus in His glory, and we haven't yet, we haven't yet, when we fully do, we will never be the same. He's the King glorified, who should not be provoked to anger. To do so, as the proverb says, is to forfeit your own soul. Psalm chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son 
that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The king, the terror of the king. Verse 3. And keep that in mind. We're going to see this king show up a few times tonight. Verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man. But any fool will quarrel. The word quarrel there I like in the Hebrew, it's burst out. Any fool would just burst out. Any fool is ready to fight. Any fool is ready to argue at a moment's notice. Solomon in the Mishlei goes through, and if you look through it, actually offers three practical ways in this book to diffuse arguments. So this is good stuff. If you'd like to learn how to diffuse an argument, perhaps in a marriage setting or a family setting, you, you, you want to cut back on the arguments, diffuse them more often. Here are three ways to do it. Number one, dismiss insults. Dismiss insults. Proverbs 12, verse 16 tells us, a fool's anger is known at once. How dare you? you know? But a prudent man conceals dishonor. Insult me, I'm not going to respond. Insult me, I'm not going to say anything right away. Put it away. Dismiss the insult. Second way to diffuse arguments. Disregard issues that you know to be volatile. Just shelve them. Put them aside. Proverbs 17, verse 4, we saw this one a few weeks back. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Don't go looking for it. Set it aside. So dismiss insults, disregard issues that could be volatile. And number three, drive out the scoffer. Now, ladies, that doesn't mean kick him out. (laughs) Drive out the scoffer. In other words, husbands, wives, between you, push the scoffer out the door. See, we're we're not going to have that in our marriage. See, Proverbs 22.10 says, Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. If you stop the scoffing, oh, well, you were so busy today. You have no idea what I went through. Push it out. (laughs) Leave the mocker out of the argument. And it's not just a marital thing. It's in any relationship. Withhold the mocking. Avoid the issues that you know will just be fights. Dismiss the insults. It's all sound wisdom. But you know what? There's an even better way. As sound as all of that is, there's a better way, and the clue is right here in this proverb in verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man. That phrase, keeping away from strife, is literally cease from striving. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Or you could say, be still. Psalm 46.10 Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The best way to make a quarrel end is let God in. Let God in. You know, honey, let's, let's pray about this. Quarrel over. Let's, let's take a moment and just ask the Lord to give us some insight in how to walk out this argument. Talking with a friend. Look, I, I don't want to argue. Why don't, why don't we just pray and see what God puts on our hearts? best way to shut down a quarrel, an argument, immediately is cease striving and know that I am God. Allow God to implicate Himself in the discussion. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now why would Paul say that? 
Probably because he kept hearing about wrath and dissension among men. Among church leaders. And it happens all the time. Not here. <laughs> Not at the bridge. You know what? I, I can't well I can I can remember the last time there was dissension among the elders. I can remember. It's been like five years, hasn't it less? And you know why? We weren't praying like we should have been. Why has it been so long since there's been a volatile argument in an elders' meeting? Because we always pray first. And we pray during. And then we pray to conclude. Where God is invited in, where men, where women lift up holy hands in prayer, wrath and dissension cease because God becomes the controller of the problem. He becomes the authority over it. And it's the best way to shut down arguments right there. Invite the Lord into the middle of it. Dissension dissipates. Striving ceases. Verse 4. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Now, if you read this from an American farmer's perspective, it's confusing. The what? After, okay, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn. Well, who would? <laughs> you know? Because the autumn, we get, the, we get all the fruit and the, the harvest and the seed and everything. We, we pull it all up and then we, we go dormant for a while, right? You've got to think like a Hebrew. You've got to think in the Middle East. In fact, that phrase, after the autumn, is literally from the cold. The slugger does not plow from the cold or in the winter time. That's what he's saying. The slugger doesn't plow in the winter time. Now, again, in America, we'd say neither do we. <laughs> but thinking Middle Eastern here, thinking Israel. In Israel, to be ready for the spring planting, you have to plow in the winter. In the winter, when it's cold and mucky and muddy and wet and difficult, it's hard labor, but it must be done. If you're going to plant in the spring, you've got to plow in the winter, in the rainy season. Solomon's saying, in this cold, muddy, mucky place out in the field, the sluggard stays inside and watches reruns of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> Doesn't get out there and work when everybody else is. And so he ends up begging in the spring harvest because his life has produced nothing. When it's time to plant, his fields are plowed because he just didn't want to go out on the cold days. Listen, there's a great spiritual application here. The interpretation is very clear about a sluggard, about a lazy, slothful person in the planting, in the plowing time. Spiritual application. When your soul is cold, when your flesh says, just hole up, stay home. You know, when you're in that place where the fires of passion and excitement and enthusiasm for Christian living is just not there. And let me just see a show of hands. How many people have been in the place where your passion for Christianity was gone? Most of us. Where you just... You, you've heard the old joke. I've told it in here before about the, the wife trying to get her husband out of bed on Sunday morning. Remember this one? <laughs> honey, get out of bed. You gotta, it's time to go to church. I don't want to go to church. Come on, honey, you got to go. I don't want to go to church. And four or five times she comes in and finally she says, Honey, you've got to go to church. You're the pastor. <laughs> when you are cold, listen, listen. Here's how you deal with it. Plow in the cold. You plow in the cold. And you may not feel it. doesn't matter. You may not be excited about it. doesn't matter. Plow in the cold. Kindle afresh. Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands, Paul told young Timothy. 
Well, how do you do that? Plow in the cold. You show up when you don't feel like it. You open your Bible when you when you're lethargic. You pray even though you're tired. You plow in the cold. You keep fellowshipping. You stay in the Word. You worship anyway. Oh, I'm just not feeling it. Doesn't matter. How many of you, when you're not feeling it at the beginning of worship, are feeling it by the end? Besides, even if you don't feel it for weeks on end, doesn't matter. Plow in the cold. Plow in the cold. Are there particular books in the Bible, perhaps that we've covered, that when you saw they were coming up, you said, that's a good season to take a break. He's really going to do Leviticus? Let's pause for a bit. It's been fun to me to watch the Wednesday night group kind of wax and wane, you know, depending on the book. I can almost, you know, Chronicles, not a lot of interest. (laughs) You know, we went through it. We plowed in the cold. First and second Chronicles, you know, I think Rachel and I were here. Pretty sure. A couple others. (laughs) You plow anyway. You keep plowing away. Even if your efforts don't seem to amount to anything, you plow in the cold. James wrote in James 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. Being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. I was encouraged. Uh, it was last week now, when, when Glenn and I had our little conversation at Thrive, I was encouraged because Glenn said, you know, I have yet to hear a single time at the bridge when you didn't mention during the teaching at some point the coming of the Lord. And I said, really? Because <laughs> I, honestly, I, it, it wasn't by design. Well, it was His design. Because you can't really be in His Word without being reminded of His coming. How do you plow in the cold? How do you get the gumption to get out the door when you just don't feel like it? You keep longing for His appearing. You know He's coming. You know that this plowing, though it doesn't seem to be producing anything right now, is going to produce. And it may be a little, and it may be a lot, but whatever it is, is going to bring joy to Jesus. Plow in the cold. Plow in the cold. Verse 5, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. You remember that verse from uh, Sunday? Uh, Let's see, where was it in chapter 18? The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Chapter 18, verse 4. And now again, a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water. Uh, We all think about things, have great ideas, have great plans. The issue is getting them out. You know, and the Spirit does that. The Spirit draws them out. A man of understanding draws it out. A wise person knows how to draw things from the depth of the heart. Remember how Jesus did it? We talked about it on Sunday. Drawing out truth, even as the Samaritan woman was, was kind of pushing back against it, she tried to keep things theological, she tried to keep them philosophical and superficial. But Jesus drew the truth out of her lifestyle, drew the sin right up to the surface. You know, I've been married five times. The man you're with, Jesus said to her, is not your husband, so you've spoken truthfully. He draws her out. 
And what does she do? She drops the jugs of water. She runs back to town crying in John 4.29, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Of course, all the men in town are going, He did? <laughs> because you notice it's all the men in town that come running up the... What? She just mentioned my name? But didn't, I didn't think so. No, good. She says, This is not the Christ, is it? And her language, her very language, what she's saying is, This is the Christ. This is Him. From that city, we're told in verse 39 of John chapter 4, many of the Samaritans believed in Him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I've done. And you know what changed her? What changed her is she finally met the seventh man. She had five husbands. She was living with a man. Six men in her life. And six is the number of a man, and six in the Bible is incomplete. You never get where you're supposed to go. You're never fulfilled. And she certainly wasn't until she met the seventh man, Jesus, who brought completion to her life. And let me just speak to husbands and wives again. You will never find full satisfaction and completeness or completion in your spouse. You're not going to find it from her, from him. You will only find it from the seventh man, the only one who can bring completion to any of us, and that is Jesus. He shows up in her life, and suddenly, he's now pouring into and drawing out of the well of her heart. And that's what a man of understanding does, and that's what Jesus does. Verse 6, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Lots of people say, hey, I'm good. I'm good. In fact, the word loyalty there is chesed. I'm gracious. I have loving kindness. I'm a good guy. Lots of people will say that. But you know what's missing? Faithfulness. Faithfulness is the issue. Who can find a faithful man? That's what he's asking. Who can find a man who who sticks to it? Who follows through? Who plows in the cold? That's what we're looking for. That's what we desire to be. Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Lots of people, as we've talked about, want to be just gracious, loving kindness, offering tolerance to any and everything. But where is the person who's faithful to the Word of God? Who's walking in the truth? Whether or not it's popular to do so, faithfulness is what's often missing. Now, the next verse... The next proverb, verse 7, gives a great example of the harvest that follows faithful plowing, even in the cold. Verse 7, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Dads, even what you do in secret will affect your kids. Let me say that again. Even what you do in secret, that is, things you don't think your kids ever will see, will, does, affect your kids. Nobody sees what I'm doing on deployment. Nobody sees what I'm doing on business trips. Oh, the kids are asleep. After the lights go out, they don't know what I'm up to. doesn't matter. What you do in secret, they will know. If you're going to do anything, and I'm talking to dads because he specifically is mentioning a dad here, A righteous man whose sons are blessed by his behavior. You want to bless your sons? Here's the key, dads. If you want to bless them, pray in secret. Give in secret. 
fast secretly. And Jesus says in Matthew 6.18, Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. One of the best things a dad can do in raising kids is do it secretly. Pray, love the Lord, offer giving, fast, and the Lord will bless it. Because, you know, the impact of what you do in secret is felt in what you do publicly and around the kids. And what greater reward is there for a dad than to see his children blessed? Verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. Skip down to verse 26. I'm going to take these two together. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil or sifts all evil with his eyes. Verse 26. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. So put together, these two verses describe a wise king first separates or sifts evil out. And then once he's done so, he crushes it. First he pulls it out to find what it is or who it is or what it is they're doing. And then he follows through with wrath and judgment. Justice demands sentencing. In fact, we always say it's a miscarriage of justice when a sentence is commuted. Or when somebody gets off on a technicality. We say justice has not been done. For justice to be done, there must be a sentence that fits the crime. Judgment requires follow-through. And so the king not only sifts out evil, but then must respond to it. And so he drives the threshing wheel over them. We have a wise king in Jesus. A terrible king. A great king. Not a tame king. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's one of my favorite lines. He's not a tame lion. Have you read that? The the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Great book. And in it, at one point, Lucy's talking with Aslan. And uh, they're still a distance off, and they're a little freaked out about this lion. Did you know Aslan means lion in Turkish, by the way? It's a little piece of information for I'm not lying. <laughs> Sorry, let's get back to the main thing here. Yeah, I'm going to claw my way out of this. Anyway, what was I saying? Right, so Lucy is, and, and the kids are there, and Aslan the lion, this main character, this kind of Jesus figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's talking to them, and Lucy says, how do we know if we come near you that, that you're not going to eat us? And Aslan says, you don't. <laughs> He's not a tame lion. He doesn't do things the way we decide for him to do things or the way we expect him to do things. He is a perfectly just, wise king. He sifts out evil with piercing eyes and then he responds to evil with judgment. He follows through. Amos chapter 9, verse 9, and we should learn, take a lesson from Israel. Behold, I am commanding, I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. I'm going to shake them. At that time, the prophecy was fulfilled among the people of Israel. There was a shaking that took place and nobody was lost during that shaking. But we've watched over time how God deals intimately with the people. How God judges when a people's heart is cold, when their necks are stiff. And John the Baptist said this of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in His hand. 
He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But there's no hell. Come on. If there is no judgment for sin, then there's no justice. John the Baptist knew Jesus as the glorious King. Called Him out as the one who was sifting out the chaff, separating out the evil. Jesus talked about this sifting process in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Do you remember that one? How the enemy of the guy who owned the field came in at night and planted tares, which look like wheat, but they're actually weeds. And Jesus said in Matthew 13.30, Allow the wheat and the tares to grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Make no mistake about it. Jesus will judge wisely and thoroughly driving the threshing wheel over them. John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, Not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Note that. They will honor the Son as they honor the Father. Equal worship. How is that possible? Only if Jesus is God. And then He goes on to say, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And down in verse 27 of John 5, Jesus says, And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. What? God gave me authority to execute judgment, Jesus says, because I'm the Son of Man. Why? Because He's the Son of Man. I'll tell you later on. The next proverb is a wake-up call to our need for Him as Savior. Verse 9, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Let me see a show of hands. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Who can say that I've done that? How is it possible? Paul wrote in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. We know this, Rick. Why do we keep coming across the same theme again and again? Listen, here's why. Because the moment that we forget our propensity to sin, we become religious. When we forget our need for Jesus as a Savior, we become self-righteous. That's the point that religion easily creeps into us. You know, they, they thought they had Jesus surrounded, those religious stuffed shirts. They had done something, really it's abhorrent. They found a woman, I believe tricked a woman, into adultery. How did they do that? Think about it. They bring this woman, throw her down on the ground in front of Jesus, and they say, we caught her in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? You know, I really think that whole issue, John chapter 8... I really think that whole thing was concocted by the Pharisees to trip up Jesus. What do you say about this? Because in their minds, it's a lose-lose. If he says, stoner, well then all the message of grace that he has shared thus far has wiped out. If he says doesn't, they can say he's a law violator. Because yes, Torah law said if you commit adultery, you deserve stoning. But listen to this. Again, they say, John 8, verse 5, Now in the law, 
Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. What a cool story. Jesus is writing with his finger on the ground in the dust of the court there. And people have wondered, what was he writing? We don't know. But we know the word. When Jesus wrote on the ground in the Greek, you might want to note this, it's katagraphane. From the word katagrapho, katagraphane means to write against. So we can make an assumption that Jesus was writing against these religious leaders. Perhaps he was just writing their names. Maybe he was writing a name and then a name of a woman. Maybe he was writing a name and then the name of a sin. But as they began to realize what he was doing, the stones dropped and the religious men walked away. Their problem in coming up to Jesus was they were not recognizing their own sinfulness. If they were, they would not have come at Him as religious men. You notice that every sinner who came in contact with Jesus fell down and repented or loved Him or worshipped Him. It was the religious people that had such a problem. And when we stop recognizing that propensity to sin in us, we become religious. Just like the Pharisees did. I find this interesting. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. Possibly prophetic of exactly what Jesus did in John chapter 8. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It is engraved upon the tablet of their heart. And Jesus is writing there. And whatever it was that he wrote, it drew out of the well of their hearts the reality of their sin. And then he said, okay, sinless ones, go ahead. Fire away. And they couldn't do it. Where was the adulterer? See, that's the reason why you wonder if the whole thing wasn't one big fat setup. That they got a guy who they found out this adulterous relationship was going on. They paid him off. Caught her in the act. He runs away free and they throw her before Jesus because she was just a woman. You know. Just a woman. It was all a setup. You know, to... To use the woman to trick Jesus. And what's interesting is in verse 10, it says, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And he said, I don't condemn you either. From now on, go. Sin no more. He addressed her sin. It was sin. And he acknowledged what she was doing, what she was involved in, was sin. But at the same time, he offered her grace and says, Just stop sinning. Go your way and sin no more, he says. And don't miss this. Jesus, in doing what he did, kept the law perfectly. He did not let her off of the law. What are you talking about? Torah law called for stoning an adulterer or an adulteress. But it also required two to three witnesses. And the moment that all the guys had cleared the courtyard, the witnesses were gone. Summarily dismissed. Just Jesus and the woman. And he could lawfully say... I do not condemn you. He couldn't condemn her because he was not a witness to the crime. 
And there were no witnesses there, so she's off the hook. He is so wise. I mean, he's just brilliant. And this is what I mean. We just see wisdom flowing out of Jesus in the way he handled things, in the life that he lived. And isn't it great to know that the only witness who matters, who counts, whose voice will be heard when you stand before God is Jesus Christ. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the interceder. He is our advocate. John said in 1 John 2.1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. And only Jesus knows how to judge fairly and perfectly. Speaking of fairness, verse 10. Differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. Skip down to verse 23. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord and a false scale is not good. Why does Solomon repeat himself twice? Well, because God hates double standards. (laughs) The Lord always repeats things that He wants His people to get down and God hates double standards. The bottom line in these two verses is the scales of justice are not just unless the standard of measure is the same for everyone. And it's not in our, in our judicial system. Those who have a lot of money have better lawyers and have better ways of finding the loopholes to get out of what's going on. Those with little or nothing, it's not fair judgment. False scales in business, he's talking about that. False witnesses, legal loopholes, all of this stuff is disgusting to God. Verse 11. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. How does a young man or a young woman gain the confidence of parents or of friends or of adults? Very simple deeds. You gain trust by what you do. You gain the confidence of your parents by how you act. I've had this conversation with each of my children at one point or another. Hayden's the most recent. Why don't you just trust me? I will as soon as you're trustworthy. Well, so I have to earn it? Exactly. (laughs) It's based on what you do. And that's what Solomon is saying here. Paul repeats it to a point in 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. It is hard being young because the challenge when you're unproven is to prove yourself. And so it does take time to begin to gain the confidence of people around you, to begin to gain the confidence of adults, of friends, that you really are who you want to be, who you say you are. They see it in the deeds, in the behavior, in the action. Now I've heard... My kids say, you should trust me. And I say, be trustworthy. They say, you should have faith in me. Be faithful. And I will. You should believe me. Be an example of those who believe. It's in our deeds. It's in our behavior. And for all of us, by the way, verses 6 through 10 are summed up in verse 11. What do you mean? Well, you can talk about righteousness all you want. You can claim to have faithfulness. You can... You know, aspire to fairness and sound judgment, but the proof is in the doing. The proof is as it's walked out in your life. J. 
James 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? He says down in verse 17 of that chapter, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The proof is in the behavior. It's in the conduct. Verse 12. I like this one. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. That's very true. And there's actually something more that can be said about this. It's not just a creation verse. I think this verse has an indication about how we learn. God created us all to learn in different ways. Some, some of us here are audible learners. You can just sit back, close your Bible, close your eyes, and listen, and it gets in. Others are visual learners. You've got to have the Bible open, you're looking at the verses, you're looking at facial expression. You've got to have the you know, visual input Still others are what you could call kinesthetic learners. They're the ones up and down, getting the coffee, moving around. Got to keep it going, you know, because I got to learn. I'm trying to learn. Got to keep some movement here. (laughs) You know, the audio learner says, I hear what you're saying. The visual learner says, I see what you mean. The kinesthetic learner says, I feel you, man. (laughs) Because it's all about emotion and experience. Well, the Creator knows His creation. And what's amazing to me is that He speaks to each individual learning style. He has a way of reaching us if we are auditory, visual, or kinesthetic. And so, how can people not know Him? You know? Because there's really not a learning style in creation that God is not familiar with and doesn't know how to reach into. He, he is very good at that. He knows how to touch everybody. But people still don't know Him. And Jesus explains why when He was asked why He spoke in parables. Matthew 13, verse 13. Let me just read this to you. Matthew 13, 13. He says, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. Those visual learners. While hearing, they do not hear. Those auditory learners. Nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, and it's Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10 that he quotes. He says, you will keep on hearing, but not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull." With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes, because they see. Blessed are your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. What is the difference between the seeing, hearing, even feeling person who believes in Jesus and the seeing, hearing, feeling person who does not believe in Jesus? And it's one word, faith. It's faith. That regardless of our learning styles, we cannot get to the Lord until we open up the heart in faith. All the visual stimuli in the world will not cause a person to believe in Jesus unless they have faith. All the sounds will not lead you to the Lord unless you have faith. 
And all the running around isn't going to get you there either. (laughs) Unless you have faith in the Lord. And that's the learning style that He calls us to develop. That's what we're about developing as a fellowship. It's faith, and deeper faith, and more faith, and greater faith. And so we pray, and let me pray it right now, Lord, increase our faith. We believe, help our unbelief, that we might know You better in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13. Do not love sleep, or you will become poor. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with with food. Or literally there, it's, it's bread. So don't love sleep. He's not talking about don't sleep. He's saying don't love sleep. It's a lethargy. It's an apathy thing. It's that verse, what was the one that we, that we laughed so, so much about last week? That's the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not bring it back to his mouth. You know? <laughs> I just, that picture kills me. You know? Have you seen, you, you've probably seen like on America's Funniest Home Videos, you know, little children at the breakfast table falling asleep and their faces going right into the cream of wheat, you know, that kind of thing. That's the, that's the idea there. But, but he's saying here, don't love sleep. Because you're not going to get anywhere. Open your eyes, you'll be satisfied with bread and with food. Once again, if you want to learn the language of faith, you will not find it in apathy. You will not find it staying home. You've got to open your eyes to be satisfied with the bread of the Word. Verse 14, Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes his way, then he boasts. When was the last time you bought a car, you know? And when you're at the dealer, you're having the argument, oh, this, this price is ridiculous, this is just not fair. But when you drive the car home, even if you got ripped off, you're telling all your friends, I got a deal. Yeah, because I knew how to work the system. It was good. That's, that's what he's talking about there. Verse 15. There is gold and an abundance of jewels, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious thing. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. And for foreigners, hold him in pledge. In other words, Solomon is, is suggesting you get collateral. If you're going to loan something to someone, get collateral for it. Verse 17. Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man. <laughs> but afterward, his mouth will be filled with gravel. Okay, for you visual learners, get a picture of that. Bread obtained by falsehood, or literally, the bread of deceit. The bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Do you know that all birds eat gravel? It's kind of gross, Les. They do this. They the little cute little birds hopping around and they will find, you know. And they'll have three, four, five little pieces of gravel down there in their gizzard. And the reason is that it helps digest the food. The food goes down and the gravel crushes it and squishes it and, you know, makes it more... I don't know. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. I wasn't going to go there, but there we are. They eat gravel to grind the food. So if you want to be foul, you too can eat the bread of deceit. (laughs) If you want to be a bird brain, this is how you do it. Now, note this, though, and this is significant. The bread of deceit. What, what, is, what is the bread of deceit? That is a great picture of false teaching. This is the bread of the Word. And it is good. 
And it goes in, it is sweet to the taste, it goes down, it fulfills, it satisfies, it nurtures, it grows. But false teaching, false teaching, listen, it wouldn't be a problem if it didn't start out tasty. If there wasn't something tantalizing about it, there wouldn't be, you know, if it was just ugly at the beginning, if it was like biting into an onion right off the bat, you'd put it away. But it's alluring and it's sweet. And so you take that sweet, false teaching into your mouth, this bread of deceit, chomp down, and suddenly it breaks the teeth, it bruises the tongue, and it gashes the gums. (laughs) Trying to give you a picture there. For you visual people. For you auditory people. No, I'm not going to go there. Matthew 9, verse 7, Jesus, or verse 9, Jesus says, What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Now Jesus is, is, is asking there kind of hypothetically and he's asking rhetorically. But you know what? There are lots of men on earth who when their sons ask for bread, give them stones. When their sons are asking for truth, are giving them false teaching, pagan lies, deceit, or nothing at all. And so children are starving. No wonder children are growing up even going to Sunday school and then leaving faith, leaving church. Well, why is that? Because they're not getting it at home. No one's feeding them the bread of the Word there. Which is where it all gets shored up. You know, one flash in the pan once a week on Sundays does not do it. That is part and parcel of the problem, even more so than how we go about teaching in the church, is the lack of teaching in the home. Well, Jesus said, What man among you, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? He says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? His bread is good bread. Verse 18. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. So if you happen to be preparing to make war, make sure you get some counsel for that. (laughs) He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. Interesting verse. He's talking about the kind of people you surround yourself with. In verse 18, surrounding yourself with wisdom. If you've got to go to battle over something, make sure you've prayed it through. Make sure you have wise, godly counsel. If you've got something that you're facing that's going to be difficult, get some, get some prayer time. Get on your knees with some Christian brothers and sisters that you trust that are godly people. Go that route. But this second verse here, verse 19, note, it's a slanderer. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. The word gossip is patah in the Hebrew, and it's literally a flatterer. Slanderers... Or slander and flattery. Slander and flattery are ugly twin sisters. The person who slanders is 99% of the time also a flatterer. They're the person who gets in your good graces. But then they'll slander you behind your back. And they get in other people's good graces through means of flattery, but they're slandering behind that person's back. And Romans 16, verse 17 says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. And don't think for a moment as a pastor in this church, I don't. That is, I don't keep my eye on those who would cause division. 
My little discernment alarm goes off when I see dissension in the body. Less's discernment alarm. This is something that raises both of our hackles very quickly. If we're seeing something that is causing dissension, a breaking in the ranks, I am not down with that. But it doesn't really matter what I'm down with. What is the Lord down with? He ain't down with that. He is completely opposed to it. Slander and flattery. Such men, Paul says, are slaves, Romans 16, 18. Not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Jude says in verse 16 of his little letter, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Have you been out on a Sunday afternoon to lunch with someone and they begin to undermine perhaps something going on at the bridge. Hey, I don't have a problem. If you have a problem with something going on at the bridge, just tell me. If you see a problem, an issue, some, something that's not going the way you think it ought to be going, well, tell us. Say something. But not over lunch as you flatter your friend. Oh, yeah, you notice you're worshiping today. Boy, I, was just, I love your voice and worship. Did you really believe what Pastor Rick was saying? <laughs> Tell us. Talk about it. To those who need to hear it. Slander and flattery. Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Beware of the slanderer and the flatterer. If they'll do it to you, they will do it about you just as easily. Verse 20. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. Hmm. Lamp. The word lamp there, he's shown its pupil. The pupil of the eye will go blind. What? Curse your parents and you will go blind, is what he's saying. What does that mean? Curse your parents and the light of the eye will become obscured. You will not be able to see your way clear in life. Skip down to verse 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. Searching all the innermost parts of his being. This is how the Lord gets in. Listen. His spirit enters through my spirit. His spirit enters through my spirit. But Solomon wisely connects something here. He connects parental respect with the openness or the closedness of a person's spirit. If you are cursing your family, father, mother, if you're cursing your parentage, even as an adult gang, if I'm cursing that, it closes my spirit. And the Lord can't get into that lamp of my body to bring light. How do I deal with that? How do I, if my parents have already passed on and their legacy in my life is nothing but bad, you forgive them. You forgive them because until you do... The Lord's going to have trouble getting into your spirit because your spirit's going to remain protected and closed off. You want an open spirit, it begins with forgiveness. It's how the Lord moves in. If you curse or shut down an earthly father, you're going to have trouble opening your heart to your heavenly father. And you know, I've, I've dealt with this. I, I remember a man several years ago who had a bad, bad, actually pretty much non existent father, and I'll never forget the day he told me. I can see God as a lot of things, but I cannot see Him as my Father. Because my only conception of Father, my only idea of Father is is not good. So I just can't see God that way. Again, if you've had that bad experience with a father, with a mother, with a parental figure, 
You've got to hand it over to the Lord. You've got to forgive. You recognize, we talked about this recently, you'll recognize that they probably had a bad parenting experience themselves. And that rather than raising you, they were messed up from the way they were raised and didn't even have the equipment to be able to parent you the way you needed to be parented. However you need to look at it, forgiveness is key. Because as you forgive, you let it go and give it back to God. They are His messed up children just like you and just like me. And if you can forgive, it frees the heart. And you can begin to receive God as the Father that He is. Jesus said in Luke 11, The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. He says, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. He's talking about the illumination of the Spirit of God in your life. A life, a body that's full of light. Verse 21. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. And the best example of that proverb in all of Scripture is the parable of the prodigal son. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning. Give me my inheritance, Dad. And off he goes. And it will not be blessed in the end. He ended up chewing corn husks with the pigs. And don't forget the fact that this is a Hebrew story. So, he's eating with pigs. It's a bad thing. It's not good. He's in the lowest of the low possible place. But you know, in this parable... Both the younger son, the prodigal, and the older son who stayed home, both kids misunderstood the inheritance. Listen to the proverb again. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. What was the inheritance for the prodigal son? What was the inheritance for the son who stayed home? It was the father. It wasn't the money, it wasn't the farm, it wasn't the animals, it wasn't the ability to have a party when you wanted to. It was the Father's presence. That's the inheritance. That's our inheritance. The Father who waits for us to come back to Him when we have run away, it's all about Him. And He wants us to... What did Jesus say? Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Master. That's the inheritance. And the prodigal son missed it. Give me my inheritance. And he left home. He left the father. And the older son missed it. He was at home, but he didn't realize the value of the the presence of the father. How come you never killed a fatted calf for me? I've been faithful. I've been out plowing in the cold. You know, why am I not getting, you know, party? The father's like, you can have it any time you wanted. You're with me. We're here together day in and day out. They both missed it. Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours, Luke 15, verse 31 and 32. But we had to celebrate, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. Our greatest inheritance in the Lord is the Lord. That's our inheritance. Verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will save you. He will save you as God told Abram, I am your shield. I will cover you. Don't you go about protecting yourself, defending yourself. By the way, the second you defend yourself, you will continue to defend yourself. You'll have to keep defending yourself. Or, you can hand it over to the Lord and let Him take care of it. 
Paul said in Romans 12.17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So you can go to bat for yourself, or you can just wait on the Lord and let Him be your defense. It's the best way to go about it. Verse 24, we saw verse 23. Verse 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? If man's steps are ordained by the Lord, how can we understand our way? Well, the answer is very simple. We don't know where we're going, but he does. We are the kid in the back seat, no clue where the car is taken, but Dad is driving and he knows where we're going. And that's all we need to know. We need holy GPS. Okay, remember, remember that? God's present spirit. That's what we need. His present spirit to lead us because the best way to navigate this life is simply by faith that Father has things well in hand. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes, John 3.8. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 25. It's a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and after the vows to make inquiry. In other words, count the cost. Think before you leap. Luke chapter 9, verse 57, Jesus discusses the cost of discipleship. He says to, to those around him, in fact, I love this, I love this section of scripture here, Luke 9:57. It says as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus doesn't say, Great, hop on. No, he says, Okay, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. If you're going to follow me, we got nowhere to stay tonight. You good with that? He said to another, Follow me! But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. And he said to him, and it, it almost sounds you know, a little offensive, but Jesus said, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. I wonder how many people, because of a dead parent, will not follow Jesus. Darwin was one. Because his father and his brother, who had already died, had died outside of faith and therefore would be lost. And so Darwin said, if God can't save them, I don't want to be saved. How many people, because of... You know, it's it's one of the oldest excuses... And I'm not saying that it's not to a degree at least emotionally justified, but one of the oldest excuses is I can't believe in a God who would do this or who would allow this. Or if I believe, then what does that say about my parent or my sibling who who has already passed away who didn't believe? I can't believe because if I believe, I condemn them. No, you don't. Your belief has nothing to do with them. What's going to happen to them is between them and God regardless of what you choose or what you believe. So Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. 
but you proclaim the kingdom. And others said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Which is why Paul was always longing for his appearing. That's why John in the Revelation doesn't go back to the old stories of the Gospels. He's looking forward. And that is our call to look forward. Eyes to the prize. Alright. Think it through. Because once you make that declaration of faith in Jesus, there's no looking back. There's no letting family get in the way. No concern for home or valuables in this life. Just follow me, Jesus says. Verse 28. We covered 26 and 27 already. Verse 28, loyalty and truth preserve the king and he upholds his throne by righteousness. Oh man, that'd be so cool if it was grace and truth preserve the king. It is. It is. Loyalty is chesed. Loving kindness and truth, grace and truth. And I told you, every time I catch it, I will point this out. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And grace and truth preserve the king and he upholds his throne by righteousness. And the word righteousness there is also chesed, grace. Read that way, grace and truth preserve the king and he upholds his throne by grace. Grace. Grace and truth, gang, it's a winning combination. But the throne of righteousness is upheld by grace. What does that mean? It means there will not be a single person in all eternity who can ever claim they were saved for any reason other than grace. No one will say, well, I had a real good day, gave my life to Jesus, and that was it. I'm here. I worked my way in. (laughs) Every worshiper throughout eternity will just be praising God for the grace that saved them. And that's that's how it works. I was... um, we're almost done. I, I got to share this. On Sunday, I was talking with a um, with a couple just about a challenge in their life, a, a family matter, and the struggle was: there's right and there's truth and there's the right thing to do, and they have been standing on this for a while. But we're asking: is it perhaps time now that we begin to show some grace? And you know, they were struggling with that because what? Do I, I wish I could tell you more specifically, but I really can't. But the issue that they were standing on righteously, they were right to do what they had been doing so far. They were absolutely in the right, absolutely true, but it was time for grace. And I say that just to say this to you all, if you're going to make a mistake in the way you treat people, err to the side of grace. Better to be too gracious than to be too legalistic and self-righteous. If you're struggling, well, which way do I go? Do I show them... Acceptance and love, yeah, but yeah, but there's a truth. You know, as we saw Sunday, Jesus handled both perfectly. You know, he dealt with sin, but he did it in love. If you're going to err, err to the side of grace. After all, it's how the Bible ends, and it's how eternity begins. Revelation 22:21 says, "The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all." Amen. And the book closes, and our lives begin. Verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. (laughs) And you know, you read that, you kind of think, I'm not sure if I'd rather have strength or honor at this point in my life. Strength is there in youth. You know, it's funny, I got home from church on Sunday, 
sat down, and I could not get up. No, not because I was tired. My lower back walked. I have never had this happen in my life. I guess carrying Anna Marie down the stairs piggyback is probably not a good idea anymore. But seriously, it just locked up on me. I was like, Cheryl, I, I can't get up. She's like, well, we got dinner over here. Come on over. I'm like, can you bring it here? I went to the chiropractor. And marvelous, amazing. I mean, just like, pop. Oh, right. You know, much better shape. But I'm like, well, what's going on here? My back's locking up. I'm going to look in the mirror. There's gray right here. I mean, not bad as John, but there's gray here. <laughs> it just means, my friend, you're more honorable than I am. I may be a little stronger yet, but you're more honorable. <laughs> Listen, this is so important to get. There is strength in youth. Yes, and bravado, and, you know, I, I think of our... Our young men, in fact, I'm looking at the back here at, at the guys, uh, Cortez and Dallas, you know, the guys are strong. Probably whip me on the basketball court. Yeah, yeah, we could take the pastor. Yeah, whatever. Game on. But anyway, <laughs> there's strength in youth, but there is honor, there is wisdom that comes with older age. And it's sad that our country misses this. And doesn't recognize it, but it is absolutely true. Wise is the young man who honors the old man. Who recognizes the older man has something that even in all of his strength he does not have. And that is wisdom. It's acquired across the years. And think about this. In that awesome description of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, John wrote, His head and his hair were white like white wool. Which I believe is a literal description. I believe when we see Jesus, he's going to have this really cool flowing white hair. You know? But, but it's also a, a picturesque description of the ancient of days, of the wisdom of Christ, of the fact that he has the experience of eternity. He has that understanding. And if the honor of old men is their gray hair, how much more honorable is the older man whose wisdom comes from this Jesus Christ? Amen? Verse 30. Stripes that wound scour away evil, and strokes reach the innermost parts. Life deals us blows. Life can batter us about. But if I would be wise, each and every blow brings me to realize the futility of sin. Every sin that brings about consequence in my life teaches me and I learn from that and stripes begin to scour away evil if if I'm taking them wisely. If I'm really taking the stripes wisely, they bring me to the one who says, I will take your blows for you. I will take your stripes. I will bear your strokes that I would scour away your evil. And that's Jesus. We began with Him, the great, terrible King. We end with Him, the One who took our stripes, whose scourging healed us. And that, that is why God the Father gave Jesus the Son authority to execute judgment, as Jesus said, because He is the Son of Man. All authority given to Jesus because He is the Son of Man. What does that mean? It was as the Son of Man that Jesus took the judgment. It was as the Son of Man that He took my stripes, my scourging, to bring about my healing, and so He has the right to judge perfectly. 
Because he has walked out that right. The glorious and terrible Lion of the tribe of Judah is also the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of our sin. His stripes scour our sin and by His scourging we are healed. It's marvelous. Let's pray. Once again, Jesus, we see You all over the pages. We hear Your voice ringing in words of wisdom. We see by Your behavior, Your conduct, Your actions, we see Your perfect wisdom. And we are so amazed. And we receive Your words, Your teaching tonight as wisdom to go deep to the well of our souls. And we pray, Lord Jesus, we come before You as the great Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we bow with humility, praising and glorifying Your name. And we recognize You also, Lord, as the Lamb who was slain, who has saved our lives. And so we join the multitude in praising You for Your grace. And we will do it for all eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen.